On September 21st, Disney premiered the first three episodes of its new live-action series, Andor. Andor is a prequel to the critically acclaimed 2016 standalone film, Rogue One, and tells the story of how Cassian Andor joins the rebellion against the Empire at its earliest phase, and eventually helps to steal the Imperial blueprints to the Emperor's superweapon, the Death Star. The first season of Andor unfolds across 12 gripping and tension-filled episodes. Some fans and critics have labeled it the best Star Wars story of the Disney era. Others have struggled with the show's slow-burn pacing and lack of staples found in previous Star Wars films and series, like lightsabers, the Jedi, an overabundance of alien creatures, and stormtroopers. But just as it took Rogue One a number of years before it was widely considered the best Star Wars film since Disney purchased Lucasfilm, I believe we may see a similar shift toward the Andor series, as more and more fans embrace the depth and quality of the show over the coming months. Andor faces a number of challenges along the way to a wider appreciation. The show's premiere was the lowest rated of all the Disney Plus Star Wars series to date, and many question whether it truly belongs in the universe that George Lucas began and that Disney continued. So let's talk about Andor. This is my perspective on the first seven episodes of the series so far. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production. We are now more than halfway through the first season of Andor, and I thought it would make for an interesting conversation, primarily because so far it's been an incredibly interesting show. I think there's a lot to unpack with it, but I think on a larger scale, there's something more important happening. Is Andor the future of Star Wars storytelling? I don't know if that's the case, honestly because I don't know how it's being received by a larger audience right now. But I do know that week to week, it's something gripping, tense, and powerful. The characters are relatable, and at the same time, they're connective. There's a rhythm and a depth to these stories that I feel like we haven't seen in a lot of Star Wars storytelling lately. And I think... In some ways, that Andor is going to be a similar show and have a similar impact that Rogue One had. If you remember when Rogue One came out, 
it wasn't as popular as The Force Awakens. It was the first standalone show for a standalone film. And people liked it, but I don't know if people loved it. People loved the ending. They loved seeing elements of Star Wars on screen again. But what they really loved about it was Darth Vader and then seeing Princess Leia. And really, if we're being honest, it was seeing Darth Vader. But I think over the years, people have grown to love Rogue One. They love the risks and the steps forward that the movie took. I think they connected with the characters. They connected with the grittiness and and realism of the tale. And I think it has become, in a lot of ways, the top film in Star Wars storytelling over the past decade of Disney. And I think rightfully so. And I don't know if that speaks to the quality of Rogue One, or if it speaks to the quality of the sequel trilogy overall. But Rogue One, year after year, seems to get more adopters that buy into it and that really, I think, come to appreciate it. And I think it was a long-term journey uh, for that to happen. And I'm seeing that happen now with Andor. Or at least I haven't seen it yet, but I'm seeing a similar rhythm of a quality presentation, a quality story, characters we get to know and care about. And I don't know if everyone's buying in yet. In fact, I don't know if anyone's buying in yet. As of now, it seems to have the lowest response of any Star Wars show. And I again, I don't know if that's the case because um, people were less than enthusiastic about the last two shows that came before it, which were Obi-Wan and Book of Boba Fett. Or if it just, if the fact that it doesn't have Jedi in it and it doesn't maybe feel Star Wars to, to people, um, or, you know, if it's, if it's because it's more character based, um, I'm wondering if it's not having that same quick pull. You know, I, I do hear a, a lot of people talking about the fact that it doesn't have elements of Star Wars that we're used to, but at the same time, it has this slow burn. And that's been used both as a positive and a negative description of the show. I think a lot of people who appreciate the show have said that they've really enjoyed that slow burn, whereas others are saying, I put it on for 15, 20 minutes. It was too slow for me. I couldn't get into it. So I don't know how it's performing right now. I know that Disney is locked in for two seasons, and I really hope that they go through with it. And I really think they will because they have the star power of Diego Luna and an incredible cast behind it. Um, Tony Gilroy is a master storyteller. Um, He had commented, I believe it was in a New York Times article, that he had, I forget the exact wording, but he had said something like he had really perfected his craft that he knows what he's doing when he's writing a story and he wasn't, he wasn't bragging. He, he wasn't exaggerating. Um, he is somebody who is, you know, he's an older gentleman and he has had so much experience in writing in case you don't know who Tony Gilroy is. Um, he was the gentleman who came in and basically helped stitch rogue one together. 
he was the one who petitioned to, I think, Kathy Kennedy and, and Lucasfilm to basically have the the heroes and heroines of Rogue One die at the end, where their part in the battle was and it basically ended in a sacrifice um, to which initially, you know, the team had pushed back against that. Uh, but Gilroy basically took Rogue One, which was in tatters at the time. It was, it was really a disaster. Um, and he, he basically put it together to create uh, a, a film that feels whole. It, it feels compelling. Um, it, it's an amazing watch. So he did that. Uh, he also he wrote the film that was critically acclaimed uh, called Michael Clayton, which starred the famous actor George Clooney, and it was a very suspenseful, terse film. And then he's also written for the Jason Bourne series as well, too, uh, which is one of the more popular action series to come out, I guess, over the last twenty years. And um, you know, he was able to really launch Matt Damon's career into the stratosphere as an action hero. So Tony Gilroy took on this series. Uh, if you listen to an episode I did about how Andor came together, he took it on and he, Kathleen Kennedy reached out to him and shared the pilot uh, that was going forward for it and, and the, the, the script for it. Gilroy read it and he went back to Kennedy and he said, this basically feels like it's going to play out where it's K2SO, which is um, Andor's companion droid, and Andor storming the, the Citadel for 20 episodes. This is not going to work. And Kathleen Kennedy said, well, what's, what's the direction? And I think at that point, Gilroy who maybe wasn't as interested in going back to the Star Wars world because he was not a Star Wars fan. He did not hold the property sacred like we do. And I think he went back and he scrawled out this manifesto, this memo to Kathleen Kennedy that explained where Andor should go, where he thought Andor should go. But, it, but he laid everything out. Kennedy read it and said, nope, that's insane. We're not doing that. And then I think about a year later, just basically being stuck, the Lucasfilm team couldn't progress the story further. They didn't know what to do with the Andor series. They had announced that it was coming out, and they really didn't have the right story or the right rhythm for it. And so I think as an act of desperation, Kennedy went back and she reread that memo and said, this doesn't feel insane. <laughs> like this, this makes sense now for the character and, and maybe for the state of the world too. I mean, that that's kind of what was alluded to in that article. And so she contacted Tony Gilroy and then he wound up contacting Diego Luna and said, Hey, we're going to do this. You know, we're kind of leading this rebellion of our own. Are you with me? And Luna said immediately said, yes. So that's how Andor came together. And I think it's been really interesting because it was one of these shows that just was not on people's radars. You know, really, when you think of the big shows that were coming out, Mandalorian is at the top. Uh, I think um, the Book of Boba Fett, 
seem to interest many people, especially those who grew up with Boba Fett, you know, and loving the character, or at least loving the figure, and wanting to learn more about the character. But it was really, it was the Mandalorian, it was Obi-Wan, and then in, off in the distance, it was Ahsoka. And I think people were basically indifferent about an Andor series. So it was first announced by Disney the day that they announced the name of their streaming service, Disney Plus, back in November of 2018, with this idea that The Mandalorian was going to premiere a year later, and then Andor would come out probably in 2020. I think that's what they were shooting for. Well, that certainly wasn't going to happen because they had so many problems with basically figuring out where the show would go, the tone and the rhythm of it, um, and 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 what the, the show would be about. And so Andor wasn't filmed in the volume, which is the warehouse that has the LED walls and is was used for shows like Book of Boba Fett, Mandalorian, and Obi-Wan. Instead, it was filmed in the UK on location and at Pinewood Studios, where every Star Wars film has been filmed and, and produced over the past decade. And it lent more of a realism to the shows. And I think it affected every shot that you see there as well, too. On top of that, Disney brought in these amazing, solid actors who were not only able to perform in scenes, but were able to carry a show as well, where they were truly believable and their range was so impressive that this went beyond being just a Star Wars film. Also, this was the longest Star Wars series so far uh, per season for live action, with two seasons, and each season had 12 episodes as a plan. And I think when you have that much time, I think it makes a complete difference in the way that you tell a story. You're able to let scenes breathe. You're able to let characters grow and develop before your eyes in small and large moments. And I think that's what we're seeing in Andor. So as I said before, we are seven episodes through more than halfway into this first season. And it has been nothing short of utterly impressive. I can understand where people might feel like it is a little slow. And I think it's one of those shows where honestly, if I had to, my biggest criticism for the entire show is not in the performances, not in the writing, not in the storytelling, not in the production at all. It's the vehicle in which it's delivered. And I think being on a streaming service is fine. But the fact that we're getting shows week to week, you know, every episode week to week, that's a long time to ask somebody to wait to essentially read the next chapter of a book. And I think it was different for The Mandalorian. If you go back and really watch The Mandalorian, especially season two, there were moments in there, really every single episode felt almost like a standalone and isolated. The story continued through the entire arc of the season, but there were water cooler moments where people were discussing for days after the, the show premiered. And 
I remember some of them being, you know, seeing Bo-Katan in live action for the first time, seeing Ahsoka, that was enormous, you know, having her mentioned Thrawn, having Grogu, uh, or Baby Yoda as we <laughs> fondly refer to him, uh, being kidnapped, seeing the, the, the space troopers, um, seeing Moff Gideon again. There were all of these moments along the way that made for really interesting discussions between fans. When we got to Book of Boba Fett, they started to die down a little bit. And then I think the, the storytelling shifted for Kenobi and for Andor. And where Book of Boba Fett and The Mandalorian felt more like a week-to-week show where you really had time to, to kind of stir up that fan base and devour the content and explore it. In a way, it, it feels like for Kenobi and for Andor, that they're more like the expanded universe books that we've been reading over the past 30, 40 years. Where they dive, dive deep into the worlds, especially Andor, dives deep into those worlds. But there isn't, there aren't those, those jaw-dropping moments, you know, and, and the, the appearances of, of characters you know, we're not we're not rushing to our screens and to our computers and our phones to to discuss an appearance of someone like an Ahsoka, which could happen this season or next season, where we get a an introduction of a character like that. But I we haven't had that yet, and I think that's okay. I think that actually makes the show even better and stronger because it's not the the moments that we discuss and then we move on. Uh, but I think the vehicle in which this story in particular has been delivered, I think hurts the overall experience of it for a lot of people. And I was saying to a friend, I wish that the way Netflix had dropped all of the episodes of Cobra Kai and all of the episodes of Stranger Things at once over this past year, I wish that Andor had done that with the series, where... We were able to get 12 episodes at once, watch them on our, on our own pacing, on our own time, because I think it would actually benefit the overall viewing experience. Long term, this might actually be a help because I think from people watching it week to week, the ones who are already on board and are invested, they're going to continue with it. And I think over time, word of mouth is going to spread and that people will actually start to jump on the Andor bandwagon even more strongly than they are now. And I think it's okay. Uh, A show that has a slow burn like this can afford to build a slow fan base, especially because the second season is already underway. And so if they've committed to a second season, it doesn't matter when people jump on board, whether it's right now or whether it's over the course of the next year. And I think that's going to happen because Star Wars fans are always looking for good stories and good content. And I think if you look at Disney's track record, they've struggled at times. And I think you can say that for the films and the series. Uh, I think the, the one spot that has been pretty solid and pretty consistent has been in their animated stories. If you go back and watch Clone Wars, Rebels, Bad Batch, you know, I, I think those three alone have been incredibly solid. And I think they've created some of the best Star Wars storytelling that we've had. 
And now with a show like Andor, it's doing, for me, what I saw in those animated series. And, and with the animated series, it was funny. A lot of people wrote those shows off because they just assumed, because they were animated, they're childish and they're for, you know, for children. Not, it's not going to be a story that an adult is really going to cling to. But the storytelling was so strong. And the fact that Clone Wars had seven seasons to tell and to craft this amazing story with tons of characters and to really dive into their lives and show the effects of a galactic war on many different people and many different creatures and planets and really how it could affect a galaxy. But I think having that time and allowing the characters to grow and to develop and to breathe really changes a story. And in some ways, I feel more connected to the characters of Andor than I have in a long time with Star Wars live-action storytelling. So I think Andor is eventually going to have this fan base and this audience that it doesn't have currently, and I think that's okay. People are slowly warming up to it. People are starting to hear the conversations that are going on about it and where the story is going, and I think eventually they'll jump on board. This may happen after the, ser- the first season of the series has ended, and again, that's okay. Uh, it may never happen. People may look at it and say, it's not really my kind of Star Wars, and, and that's, that's fine. Um, I think one of the benefits we have as Star Wars fans we have so many stories, whether they're canon or they're sort of in that expanded universe legends realm where they're not really part of the official Star Wars story and, and that line, but they still exist and people can read them and can kind of craft what they want to be in their own head canon. I think that's, that's, that's a fantastic way to look at Star Wars. I think the problem is we only get two or three live action series a year. And those live action series are really, you know, without having films right now, those are our, those are basically our films. They're the substitute for our shows and our films. Um, The films have always served to be the backbone of Star Wars. And without them, Star Wars has become a little aimless. And I think the series have stepped up in some ways and in other ways, they haven't. And I think with a show like Andor, you know, again, we're getting 24 episodes of a pretty deep story with connective characters, really intense situations. And we're watching, the whole point is to see Andor go from a mercenary to a revolutionary. And all of that takes place. And Gilroy has said in past interviews that his goal with the series is to walk it right up and into... Rogue One. So as a prequel, it goes directly into the film the same way that Rogue One walked right up to A New Hope and led us into that trilogy. And so if you love it so far, or you're indifferent to it, or you find it too boring and you've given up on it, it's okay. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves as fans... We've been given subpar storytelling. I am not somebody who believes solely in the original trilogy as being the the everything of Star Wars and that everything else that came after it 
uh, is is lesser. I, I don't believe that at all. In fact, I would put something like the Clone Wars and Rebels um, right up there with the original trilogy as far as storytelling. Because if you care about the characters and care about the situations they're in, and if the the level of their heroism is basically matched against the level of 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 evil, then it makes for an incredibly compelling story. So all of this is to really say, if you love it, keep going with it. If you're indifferent to it, keep going with it, because I think it's going somewhere really strong. And if you find it a little slow or boring right now, keep going with it, because the quality is there, the storytelling is there, the characters are there, and I have a feeling, like we did with Rogue One, in a few years, we're going to be looking at a show like this as the standard of solid Star Wars storytelling. The show is very different from The Mandalorian, and I think that's a really good thing. I love The Mandalorian, and for me, that seems to be a story that could be told in no more than 30 or 40 minutes for each episode, and there's a magic to it. The casting has been pitch perfect. The pacing is is perfect. It's well thought out. Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni, really as leaders, have done such an immense and incredible job. And I think as beloved as they are, I don't think they truly get enough credit for the impact that they've had on capturing the magic in that story, in that Mandalorian story. And so they've built a show that is exciting. uh, It's enjoyable. It feels like Star Wars. And yet we have this other show that is exciting, it's enjoyable, and at the same time feels like Star Wars, but a different side of Star Wars. And really the depth at which they tell the story and and with the brilliance that they tell these stories. It's Tony Gilroy, I believe it's Stephen Schiff as well too as a writer, uh, and I think Dan Gilroy, which is Tony Gilroy's brother, is also a writer. There are a number of writers on the show so far, and yet they've crafted this this great tale where I feel like for the first time, I want to know every character's name. And I think the last time I felt like that for me was something like The Force Awakens or Rogue One. Definitely The Clone Wars as well, too. I would put that right there and, and Rebels, where you start to really care about these characters that you want to know every single person's name and you want to learn as much as you can about them. I think also one of the connective tissues in storytelling is repetition and returning to a spot. Um, and I, I think Andor does that really well. When when Andor, after he pulls off the heist in season in episode six, in episode seven, he returns to the planet Ferrix, where he reunites with Marva. And with Bix. Bix was a former lover of his. And Marva is like a mother to him. And it was really interesting to watch it in the seventh episode. When he returns. I felt like I knew his his homestead. Uh, I knew where Bix lived. 
I knew so many areas of the town. And for me, it was the first time I felt like that in a while, really, since the original Star Wars. And I, I think that's the case with Star Wars, with A New Hope, because over time we've seen the Lars homestead, we've seen uh, the most Eisley Cantina, and a lot of areas within Tatooine like that. But for me, it was this, it was going back to these places and revisiting these places. And really, I mean, the first, if you watch the first episode of Andor and go back to it, there's a lot of character and story building where they're introducing so many aspects and they're, they're slowly moving the story along, but they're introducing you to his droid, to, to Marva, to his backstory, through flashbacks, um, to where Bix and Tim live and work, um, you know, where, where Cassian works as well and where his friends are. And what you're basically doing is it's you're, you're sort of going through Mr. Rogers' neighborhood at that point. You're you're getting to know where everyone is is situated and located, and and just an overall feel of where everything is, so that when Luthen comes to visit him, and everything goes crazy at that point, and he has to leave, when he returns, that whole area of Phoenix is a familiar place. You're, you're now uh, invested. And even though you stepped away for a number of episodes, when you return, you know who those people are. You know Andor's connection to each of them, what they mean to him, and what that place means to him as well, too. And that's where you get that emotionally taught storytelling, where you don't need things like TIE pilots and stormtroopers and lightsabers to connect. Now, I'm not saying Jedi and Sith and all these other elements are bad things or are cheap forms of storytelling or anything like that. They're wonderful. But I think in a story like this, when you remove those elements that we know and love and yet create this connective tissue and these, these connective, interesting uh, tension-filled stories that that leave you on the edge of your seat. I think there's something there. And so I think they're doing that with the show. One of the elements I wanted to discuss in particular was the fifth episode. So the way the season has been working is... The first season takes place over the course of one year, and it's split into four parts, and each part has three episodes. It's a three-episode arc. And so usually, the first episode of that arc is sort of the establishing the, the, the setup for the premise of that arc, and then the second one um, tends to fill it out a little further, and then the third one is the payoff, and usually there's been more of of an action bent to it. And so we saw that in, in this recent three episode arc episodes four, five, and six. And so episode four laid the foundation of the heist that Andor has essentially volunteered to, to be a part of. He's being paid to be a part of this. He's not fighting for the rebellion like the others are. Um, He doesn't know who he'll be working with or even really what the full job is. He's just 
uh, Luthen, who's you know who's the art dealer, who's kind of working behind the scenes to put this help shape this rebellion and put everything together. Um, he and the, his team are basically they've come up with this heist where they where the goal is to break into this imperial base and to steal the imperial credits for what would essentially be a you know worth for for a quarter which is immense and that would help to basically fund this rebellion or a large part of the rebellion at the beginning and so that that fourth episode is really important because it introduces the characters that Cassian would be working with and then at the same time it starts to build even more tension because you know that this mission is coming up, which feels and seems like a suicide mission. And at the same time, he has to get to know the people that are around him and not only build a trust with them, but also have them trust him and and take him in as one of their own. In such a short window, because you're talking about only a handful of days before this mission is to occur. And so after the fifth episode came out, and then we got the sixth episode, the sixth episode was the payoff where we had um, the actual heist. And it was the most action-packed episode that we've seen so far. But that fifth episode was looked at as one that people could pass up. In fact, uh, somebody said online, essentially, you know, you could you could skip the fifth episode and you'd still know everything that's going on. It, you know, it was just, it was slow. Uh, some people were complaining that nothing really happened in that episode. So you didn't even really need it. And there it was filler. And I'd like to make a case that it's exactly the opposite, that it might actually be the most important element of Andor and of, of successful storytelling for the show. And the reason being is If you look at the other shows that have come out so far, we haven't gotten a lot of episodes. In fact, I think The Mandalorian uh, was maybe the largest with eight episodes. Book of Boba Fett had seven episodes, and this is in a season. And the Obi-Wan miniseries only had six episodes. Now, Andor is twice as long as Obi-Wan with 12 episodes for this first season. So the writers only have to get Andor to a certain point because they have an entire season of 12 more episodes to go before they go right up to Rogue One. And so I think when you have more time to tell a story, you don't have to cram everything in in a a small amount of time. You can let these characters grow and breathe. And I think the fifth episode does an amazing job of that Because I think if they didn't have that episode, you wouldn't care as much about the people that he had to to work with and to build a trust with. And I think the episode also takes place on the eve of the attack of essentially the robbery that Cassie Nandor is a part of. And he slowly gets to know each and every one of them. And he has a different interaction with each one. So initially, he has conversations with Vel, who is leading this group, and Cinta treats his wounds, and so there's a connection there as well, too. And a lot of this is happening in in sort of downtime. And then one of the biggest connections he has 
it's is with Nemec, uh, who is the youngest of the group. He had he's the one who has the journal where he's written sort of his his manifesto and and how he feels about the rebellion, uh, which I think is going to play a larger part for Cassian eventually. But I think in other Star Wars series, Nemec would have been a very simplified character without any connection to Andor, except to, to essentially give him the journal. And someone who's, you know, who's watched the show so far could make a claim that that was really the only point of, of his character. But I think episode five gave us a chance to get to know him in a different way and to really feel his passion behind the movement and why he was a part of it. You know, even even in episode three, you start to see his fear as well, too, where he says to Andor, like, how can you sleep knowing that we're going into this? And that restlessness comes from, in a lot of ways, a fear. And Andor winds up calling all of them out when he reveals that he's doing this because he's getting paid and not because he really cares about a rebellion or has any stake into it. But taking an episode and putting him in a land that he's not familiar with, with people that he doesn't know and having this sense of distrust on all sides where they don't know if they can trust him. They don't know who brought him there and he doesn't know who he can trust. You know, you have a former stormtrooper who's part of it. You have somebody who's working as an Imperial commander. Who's also, you know, who's essentially a traitor and who's working with this small uh, rebel cell. It's an immense story, and and it really crackles at times with tension, with excitement. And I hope you feel that, and I hope you're able to look at an episode like episode five as something that is not superfluous or filler, but is is truly needed to move these characters forward. Because I think without it, and I, I feel like we've gotten this from the other shows, without that episode, the heist just feels like another action sequence that we've seen in Star Wars. And instead, it rings true because we also get to see, not only from the vantage point of the rebels and that cell that's trying to pull this off, but from the Imperials. It humanizes the Imperials. We get to see the one commander, we get to see his son and his wife, his family, and how for them, this isn't evil trying to control the world. It's a job, and he's been put into a position of leadership. And then we get the simple question where they, they've basically, it's, you know, a, a squad essentially goes to its leader and says, can we, can we have the night off to see this incredible event that occurs only once a year and occurs for a handful of minutes. You know, can we join the the tribe that's coming to view this thing and can we can we have that time off and, and see this and, and celebrate as well? And so I think it in some ways it it humanizes the other side and, and shows what life is like for them as well. And then I think at the same time it gives you people to really root for and you get to see Andor build some sort of relationship with every single one.
I'm being honest, I really went into Andor without any expectations. And I would say even my expectations were lowered because I did not enjoy Book of Boba Fett and Kenobi as much as I thought I would. And that had nothing to do with any new characters or anything like that. I actually really liked the characters that were presented. I thought in some ways the storytelling was sloppy. It was rushed at times. The characters weren't fully developed. And I'll give you a really good example that goes back to what I was talking about with episode five. If you go back and watch Kenobi, at one point he has to save Leia from the Fortress Inquisitorius, I think it's called which is essentially the the home base where the Inquisitors are. And it's over this huge body of water. And so he and a a spy, who I believe is working for the Empire, but is is a traitor to the Empire and is working with the Rebellion, um, leading an an underground railroad essentially for for, um, Rebellion sympathizers and, and for Jedi. And I think her name is Tala, I think. And so she and Obi-Wan fly to this fortress to rescue Leia. And the reason why they can do that is because Tala is still part of the Empire. And for me, she was the most interesting character in the entire series. Because we knew what happens with Leia. We knew what happens with Obi-Wan and with Darth Vader, we know where their story goes. You know, how they get there is also interesting, but with her, we had never heard of her before. And so I think to see her infiltrating and to be playing, you know, where she has kind of a foot in both sides, where she's pretending to be an Imperial officer and at the same time, any wrong move that she makes could lead to her death because she's helping the rebellion. She opens the door for Obi-Wan so that he could rescue Leia. Again, a fascinating, fascinating element. And then the next episode, she dies. She basically sacrifices her life you, um, you know, to help Obi-Wan escape. You can see it coming, but there wasn't much in there. And I remember the excitement I felt after that first episode of, of seeing her. And really, you know, and starting to get to know her and seeing her go into this fortress. And then the next episode, she dies. And that's okay. You know, it's only a six episode arc. But I feel like if she were in Andor, that episode in between or two or three episodes in between where we got to know her would have made her such a connective and interesting character that I think more people would have really appreciated her. And I think you would see more people cosplaying as as her. And really into her and wanting more stories from her. And I think that's what separates a show like Andor from Kenobi. Where you have more time and space to develop these characters that might not otherwise have room to grow and to develop. I think it will be interesting to see how future Star Wars stories are received. I have a feeling, not just as a huge Ahsoka fan, but that the Ahsoka series will be very good. And that's really down to the fact that Dave Filoni, who worked with George Lucas for the almost the entirety of the Clone Wars series and created the Ahsoka character, 
And I think he's, I think he's been working on this story in his head for years and finally has the vehicle to, to tell the rest of her story, or at least this part of it. So I think that that will be a success. And I think that in a similar vein to the Mandalorian, the tone, the writing, the characters, all of that will come together in a great way. But I think whether we realize it or not, Andor is starting to set a standard of how Star Wars stories will be told in live action. And that's not to say anything about it being more adult fare or grittier. I don't think we need that to define a Star Wars show. I think a Star Wars show could be anything. But you have to get the storytelling basics done right. I look at the book of Boba Fett, and while there are characters that are interesting in there, and there's a storyline that could be very interesting in there, I felt like it was a rushed project. When having seven episodes, two of them, so roughly a third of the story, was essentially the Mandalorian crammed into it. And crammed into it just at the point where we really needed more of, of a development of Boba Fett and Fennec. We didn't have that. I think Andor has set up a new blueprint of, of what Star Wars storytelling should be. Longer seasons, more in-depth characters and writing, maybe even less fan service to a large degree. But I think the new standard will be well-developed characters, an interesting and suspenseful or exciting, gripping story that will pull people in, one that won't be afraid to take the time to let their characters breathe and to give them space to develop, and one in which, whether it's a comedy or a drama or horror, it will fit that tone and will grab the viewer and will hold the viewer. And I think that only happens under masterful storytelling. So I think that's, if there's one piece of Andor that's going to hopefully continue and carry on for years to come, I think it's that. I think we've now seen the standard. And I think even for people who maybe don't like Andor, you know, or aren't as interested in it as they would be in something like, like a Book of Boba Fett or a Kenobi series, you know, with characters that we know already and really, you know, tend to care more about. I think if a series like that came after Andor, I think it would be even less well received than it was before Andor. And I think that's a really good thing for the Star Wars universe. Because people are seeing solid storytelling, characters they care about, and these amazing moments. The, the last one for me was from episode seven, um, broke my heart. It was where Cassian returns back home and he's talking to Marva and he's saying, Marva, I have all this money. We can just get up and we can go anywhere. And she says, I'm done being quiet. I need to fight for what I believe in. I need to fight for this rebellion. She tells him to, to leave, that he's, he's earned that through what he's been through in his life since he was a child, that he should, just, he should leave and live out his life and go where he wants to go. And Andor turns around and says, I'll never be able to rest, though, because I'll, I'll never stop thinking about you. I'll never stop wondering about you. And she says in this amazing, beautiful way, with tears in her eyes, in sadness, 
and then joy that she has this connection with someone who is like a son to her. She says, that's just love. Nothing you can do about it. And that was one of the most emotionally connective lines that I'd heard from the entire series. It just broke my heart. I had to play it four or five times in a row because I was just, I was floored by it. One of the characters that I haven't even mentioned yet was Mon Mothma, who is portrayed by Genevieve O'Reilly, and she is doing a phenomenal job with this character. You know, I think in a lot of shows now, we get this shorthand for a strong female character where they they do something to show their strength. They kind of turn and pose toward the camera, kind of giving a nod and breaking the fourth wall, like to, as if to say to the audience, I'm a, I'm a strong, empowered female character. And I think that does a disservice to a lot of fans, male and female, because it's almost like a type of signaling and it, 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 it's a, it's a very, it's kind of a, a quick shorthand for, for a strength that hasn't been shown. And I think with Star Wars, one of the blessings that we have is that we truly get strong characters. And we truly get strong female characters. If you go back and watch the Clone Wars, you have seven seasons of looking at the world through Ahsoka Tano's eyes. And it makes for some of the most compelling storytelling. And you see a character grow over time that at one point she gets kidnapped and taken to this planet where she's essentially hunted for fun by Trandoshans, which are uh, characters like Bosk. They look like Bosk, lizard-like characters. And she helps a group of people who've been taken there survive because at that point, all of her master's lessons, she studies under Anakin Skywalker, they come back to her and she's able to verbalize that, that he had helped prepare her for a moment like this. And she survives because of that. And when she steps forth after that, I think that happens in, in season four, three or four, she becomes a much stronger character because she's taken ownership of all the lessons that she's been taught. She's Daniel from the Karate Kid after working with Mr. Miyagi. I know that's a more simplified example, but, but that's what happens, right? We see characters like Jin Erso, who's incredibly strong. Uh, we see, we see, we've been given examples like Sabine Wren or or Harrison Dula from Rebels. We see the complex issues that they have to deal with, the courage that they have to move beyond them, and to and to build, you know, to edify those around them and to to bring them up, and sometimes to carry them, and sometimes to follow them, and sometimes to walk side by side with them. Those are characters that once you go through a journey with them in an animated series or a live action series or a book or a video game or a movie, they don't leave you. And that's what Star Wars does. And that's what Star Wars is doing with Mon Mothma in Andor. We are seeing the beginning of a rebellion and what she has to deal with is immense. 
it would likely break most people because she can't even reveal her true self to her loved ones. Every scene that she's in crackles. The ones where she goes to Luthen's shop to talk to him. And they're basically putting on a show for her driver who they don't know if they can trust and probably can't trust because he's been installed by the Empire to monitor her and to watch her. And so they, they, they do this dance, this choreography, where they're pretending to be characters and pretending to be these harmless creatures when actually they're planning this huge rebellion. And the fate of the galaxy rests on their actions. And she says to her childhood friend that people around her or people in the Senate think that she's doing these works of charity or that she's, she's coming up with these fundraisers or these projects that she's working on. And that they try to get in her way and, and to, to basically cause her to fumble or slow her down. But she's created those things that she's doing to distract the people around her. So they're trying to slow her progression for those little, essentially innocuous causes that she seems to be fighting for, when in actuality, it gives her enough room that they deem her harmless, that she's able to start to front a rebellion. There's a moment in episode seven, and I keep going back to episode seven because to me, it's my favorite one so far, even more so than the heist, because what we're really seeing there, I think, is some of the best character storytelling that we've seen, where she's almost at a point of of tears, where she's trying to say to Luthen, you're doing all these things, you were behind this heist. And now we're going to feel the effects throughout the galaxy because the emperor and the, and his empire are not going to stand for this. And they're going to cut off any heads of opposition that emerge. And at the same time, they're on a time crunch because the driver is outside and she has to then go from a face of utter concern and fear and almost at a break point to a smile as they both play their roles, put their masks back on and play their roles that they've been playing in public. It's a fascinating exchange and it keeps happening. And every sequence she's in is incredible. When she talks to her childhood friend and she turns around at the end of that conversation and uses his own words back to him to show him that she is secretly leading a rebellion. That was absolutely incredible. And I think in the hands of a less capable writer, it would have been a little more over the top. It probably would have been a little quicker, and it wouldn't have been as smart. And I I think when you have smart writing like that, it hits so hard and it remains with you. I know for me, I almost jumped out of my chair because it was, it was such an interesting conversation. You didn't know which way it was going to go. There were people all around them. It builds up that tension. And then for a second, for a brief second, she takes off her mask and she says, this is who I am. 
Are you with me? Incredible. Incredible moment. And I think we keep getting moments like that in this series. And I think it makes a huge difference. And again, I think long-term, this is going to become a fan-favorite series. And I would say a lot of the people you know right now or have seen writing about it on social media and you know in, in our collecting groups and in our fan groups aren't fully on board yet. But it's happening. A rebellion is happening. Do I think Andor is a perfect show? No. But it's one that has gripped me. And again, I went into it with no expectations. To be honest, I was leaning more toward feeling either indifferent or feeling like I would this would be another show that would disappoint me. And it's really just the opposite. And it's been nice because I've had conversations every week with friends about each episode. And I feel like we're back to being kids again, or even going back to the time, I would say, of The Force Awakens and Rogue One, where we were really excited to talk about what could happen or what we just saw and the moments that, that really hit us emotionally, the things that excited us, those moments that were incredibly tense, basically the best parts of Star Wars. I think it's a different Star Wars, because I think if you were to compare this to something like Empire Strikes Back, there is a difference. But I don't think it's better or worse. I think it's just a different feeling that still feels like like Star Wars. I love that we're getting it, it. Honestly, it feels more like a book. That we're reading the expanded universe book of of Andor and learning about him and learning about how the the imperial leadership works and and the battles that they have where they're they're almost trying to kind of step over one another to get ahead and just all of that interplay and what life is like for people like you and me if we were in one of these worlds as the galaxy was slowly being taken over by the empire. It's fascinating stuff. And so I think over the next year or so, the effect that this show is going to have is going to be really interesting. And I honestly, I can't remember if I mentioned this before, but the way that people are watching it is week to week now. And I think that it's slowly building a larger audience and it's going to take a long, longer period of time because it doesn't have a Grogu from The Mandalorian or uh, a Rancor and Boba Fett from The Book of Boba Fett or the the duel between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader from Kenobi. 
it doesn't have those types of draws. You know, the return of of Hayden Christensen and Ewan McGregor. Instead, it has a story. It has one or two characters that we know, but there isn't a lot that's going to draw in or, or grab the attention of your average, more casual Star Wars fan or viewer. But it has the story, and I think through word of mouth, people are going to get more and more into it. And I think where we're going to start to see that actually happen is once the series has wrapped for the first season. Once we finish that 12th episode, we will have an entire season of Andor in front of us that we can watch however we want to watch it at any time, instead of waiting week to week. And all of a sudden, that slowness of the series is going to start to pick up much more quickly because we can go right into the next chapter instead of waiting for that chapter to be delivered to us a week later. And I think that's going to make a difference, and I think that's going to come at the perfect time, too. So I do think that by the time Season 2 rolls out, that Andrew will have a much bigger audience. And I think people will start to see the value in the storytelling aspect of it. And I think people will be more connected to the characters as well, too. So I hope the show continues on the path it's going on. I think it's about to really ramp up as far as intensity and I'll even say action as well, too. I think the pacing is now going to pick up because they've spent the first half really laying the foundation for where the rest of the, the series, which is essentially a season and a half, is going to now go. And if the second half of the season is anything like the first, I think we're in for a true treat. Star Wars is fascinating, it's creative, it's exciting. And I'm glad that we have moments like this where we can talk about shows that are really special, that people have put so much time into, and have executed in an amazing way. It really will be interesting to see where Cassian Andor's journey goes from here. And how he eventually becomes the character that sacrifices his life in order to defeat the Empire. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation of a look at the Andor series. It's been so much fun watching the first half of it. And I hope this conversation brings you excitement for the show. And I hope it gives you a different perspective to consider. Because I, I think that's really important when we're looking at shows like this. And I hope it gives you a fuller appreciation of, of what they're doing in this show and really what's working so far. I look forward to exploring more with you on Star Wars, Prototypes, and Production. <laughs>